appointments. We talked about two weeks ago, should Christians be involved in government? And we saw the biblical teaching on that issue. Last week, we talked about the subject of immigration, and we saw clearly what the Bible teaches on that subject matter. Today, our topic is the redistribution of wealth, which I know y'all are just can't wait to uh, hear about. But anyhow, that's our topic for today. And so um, also, if you didn't pick up one, there are copies of our Constitution in the lobby. Um, if you didn't get one, make sure you get one. These were donated to the church. This wasn't church money that bought co- copies of the Constitution to give to you. These were purchased by one of our church members. And so you can have those, and I put that out there in hopes that you will actually read it so you'll understand the guiding document for this nation uh, that has been a part of, uh, and how it was, and we can understand how it was formed in things through sermons like this, but that's the document that guides our nation. I hope you'll spend some time reading that. Um, again, our topic today is the redistribution of wealth. And when you look through the scriptures, we see all through the scriptures these concepts of generosity. We see the concepts of sharing what I have with those that don't have. Um, and so even Jesus tells the rich young ruler to sell all that he has and then go and follow the Lord Jesus. So are there notes in the scripture of early communism? Are there notes in the scripture when it talks about generosity and sharing and Jesus' appeal to the rich young ruler? Are there notes in there of early socialism? So let's turn to the text to see what the text has to say on this topic. Um, We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4. Actually, it says in your your bulletin, uh, 2 Thessalonians, we'll get to that passage a little bit later. Made a decision, changed last night about 8.30. So we're going to Acts chapter 4 as our text, our primary text. Um, and I want to, before we even tackle that, I want to establish one thing up front, and is that the, it is that the Bible has no problem with private ownership. Um, and we know this because of one of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number eight says, Thou shalt not steal. Steal, that was the one that you are thinking of, right? Thou shalt not steal. The whole concept of how can you steal something from somebody if nobody's supposed to own anything, Right? And so right in the Ten Commandments itself is this whole concept, this whole idea of private ownership. The tenth, the tenth of the Ten Commandments, I think I said that right, that was the eighth. The tenth of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not covet. Again, how can I covet something if nobody's supposed to own anything? How do I covet what my neighbor has if nobody's supposed to own anything? And so right in the Ten Commandments themselves, God uh, uh, um, is behind this idea of private ownership. So now let's turn our attention to this particular topic of redistribution of wealth um, and, and how that plays out in our world as far as governments and economic systems. So uh, let's stand to read together Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 32 through 35. This is the most often quoted passage of Scripture um, in support of socialism. And so let's read what the Scriptures have to say. Matthew chapter 4, verse 32 through 35. Before we read it, I'm going to remind you that we stand up each week because this is where truth comes from. And I'm saying that because whatever the Bible concludes on this matter or whatever matter, we submit ourselves to biblical teaching. And so if the Bible tells us that socialism is the most biblical form of government, that we're all going to walk out of here today with an aim toward a socialist government. (laughs) I'm just saying that, but again, we are committed to the biblical worldview, right? All right, so all right, so let's allow the Bible to speak to us. Matthew chapter, or Matthew, Acts chapter four, verses thirty-two through thirty-five. Here we go. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the need proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had. All right, you may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, gulp, gulp. Um, so let's look at this passage of Scripture here, just kind of walk into this. It says, verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Seems pretty clear, right? Nobody claimed possession. Nobody claimed private ownership of any of their own possessions. They kind of looked at it as a communal, like, hey, if I've got something and you have a need and I can meet that need, then you can have what I have. And that's kind of what we see seems to be going on here in these verses, uh, at least on the surface. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Verse 34, and with all of this good Jesus vibe that everybody in the community here in the early church is feeling, and there's this mutual goodwill that was at play. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Again, sounds suspiciously like we might think of as socialism or as communism even, uh, this idea that there's communal ownership of property. Verse 35, and then they laid these things at the apostles' feet, that is the deed to their house, the proceeds from the sale of their house, their car, their boat, their whatever, their shop, grandma's jewelry, everything, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, I wanted to take a quick poll before we get any deeper into this. How many of us think that the scriptures are saying, maybe we won't do a raise of hands, but how many think the scriptures are saying that socialism is the way that we're supposed to go? Nobody wants to raise their hand on that one. And those of you that say, oh, I'm not sure. Well, let's just keep on plowing into this. We can certainly say and see that in these verses, there is a demonstration in the early church of tremendous trust in God's ability to provide for one another. Uh, the fact that they were willing to forego some of their belongings, forego grandma's jewelry, sell possessions in order to give to those that had need, there's tremendous trust. We also see here in the early church that there's also um, a level of generosity and love for one another that is admirable. In fact, we see this same demonstration just a few chapters earlier in Acts chapter 4. Let's take a look at it. Acts chapter 4, verses 44 and 45. It says, And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. So there's this common sense of what I have, that you can have some of that if you have some sort of a need. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds of that as any had need. So I just want to point out here from Acts chapter 4 that what we read in Acts chapter 2, that what we read in Acts chapter 4 is not just some sort of one-off occurrence, but that this happened, this became a pattern at least of two in the early church. But again, is this early communism? Is this notes of socialism? Well, in both socialism and communism, the acquisition of money is compulsory, right? So the government's going to come in through taxation, and they're going to take from you. In communism, they're going to hold all of your property as the same. In the Communist Manifesto, uh, Karl Marx writes that, hey, the very first thing that we're going to do when we institute this system of communism is we're going to absolve all ownership. That is that in communism, the government owns everything. In socialism, the government owns all of the 
the, the economy and all the businesses and that sort of thing, and they run those businesses. There's no private ownership in that sense. So there's a little bit of a dividing line between the two. But you'll notice that, again, in both of those systems, in communism and in socialism, that giving to the government is compulsory. Nobody gave you a choice, right? You don't pay your taxes, they throw you in jail. You don't give over the deed to your house, they come and throw you in jail. I mean, they just come and take. But you'll notice that the early church was bringing the proceeds that they brought voluntarily. And so in that sense, we don't have in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 some sort of early communism or early socialism because they were bringing these gifts voluntarily. Nobody was telling them with a gun to their head that you have to give these proceeds. They were given voluntarily. That is, a government-sponsored redistribution of wealth, what we have is not what we see here. What we have, rather, are private citizens who own stuff, which the Bible we've already established from the 10th commandment and from the 8th commandment, we've already established are able to own stuff, and they freely voluntarily give to those in need. Furthermore, furthermore, even though many of them brought the sale of their homes to the poor, many in the early church continued to retain their property. The Bible says on innumerable occasions that the early Christians met in each other's homes, homes that they owned. So there was not this, uh, this, this everybody's supposed to sell their homes, everybody's supposed to sell their stuff and pull it all together and then we all just pick our little piece out of that pie. That's not what you see in the early church. The Bible tells us that it was not immoral for them to own a house. Um, if that was the case, then, you know, the early church trying to figure out where they were going to meet at had to go stay, had to go to Larry's house for, for house church because Larry was the only one who wouldn't sell his house, right? And so I guess we'll go over to Larry's house because that's the only person who still owns one. Sorry, Larry, right? Um, so this idea that Christians uh, were compelled that they had to give to sell their possessions is not what's in view. Rather, we see a voluntary giving over um, of, and, and it shows a level of generosity. It shows a level of dedica dedication among the early Christians that they were feeling at that moment in time. Again, this is not, however, a biblical principle or a biblical mandate that the church is supposed to, and the individuals in the church are supposed to sell everything that they have. This is not some sort of new biblical regulation or law that's placed on us of giving up all of your possessions. Let's go a couple of more, more verses forward because Peter speaks right on the heels of this you know, celebrating of everything in common and helping everybody that had need. Peter speaks right to this issue and settles the issue for us. Look at Acts chapter 5 and verse 4. Peter's talking to Ananias and Sapphira here who had just lied about the sale price of some land. And Peter says to them, hey, look, there's no need to do this. Why? Verse 4, because while it remained unsold, <clears throat> did it not remain yours. That is, did it not remain your own? And so Peter here is affirming private ownership. Ananias and Sapphira, before they had sold this land to somebody else and it belonged to them, it was Ananias and Sapphira's. So he says, and so Peter here affirms this whole concept, this whole idea of people in the church still owning their own stuff. And, um, and so uh, Paul, later in the New Testament, makes no demand that, they, um, that we sell all of our things speak, and then, and then freely distribute those. Speaking to those who are rich, Paul simply says, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 18, that they are to do good, to be, that is, that they are to be rich in good works, that is, helping people with their money, generous, not redistributive, but generous and ready to share. You say, okay, Gordon, I see what you're saying, but wouldn't society be better 
wouldn't society be better if there was not quite so much disparity between rich and poor? Wouldn't it be better if there was more of a leveling of wealth so that there weren't some who were just fabulously wealthy and then those who were just living hand to mouth, right? Wouldn't it be better? That's a really great question. Let's see what the Bible has to say about that. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 17, Jesus is telling a parable here and he speaks to the issue of an inequality of possessions. Look at Luke chapter 19 and verse 17. He says, Jesus says, he's teaching about rewards in heaven. And he says to one of the guys, he says, because you've been faithful in a very little thing, the guy had been given 10 denarii or 10 silver coins or whatever it was, and he'd gone out and he had doubled his money. And so he comes back to the, 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 figure, the, the master in the story, and the master says, hey, look, because you've been faithful with what I gave you, because you doubled your money, because you took it, you didn't go bury it in the sand, but because you were fruitful with it, he says, because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you will have authority talking about his afterlife experience, over 10 cities. Over 10 cities. So as a reward, Jesus says, this, this, this servant of mine who's been faithful will be given ownership or, or given authority over managing 10 different cities. And to another guy who had about half as much to oversee, he had five denarii. Jesus says, verse 19, you are to be over five cities. So one person in heaven oversees 10 and another person oversees five. So what we see here is that Jesus, in talking about rewards in heaven, says even in heaven, there's going to be a disparity of possessions. There's going to be a dis- an inequality of possessions, that one person's going to have more because their rewards are going to be more, and other people, people will have less. And so this is going to be our experience for the rest of eternity. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Let me read that again. Behold, I'm coming quickly, Jesus says, and my reward for you in heaven for all of eternity is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So Jesus says right here in Revelation chapter 22, again, our experience of heaven from one person to the next. I expect Mother Teresa is going to have all kinds of stuff, right? And Gordon will just be there, right? And, you know, and so, but that Jesus is affirming here that there is rewards and that those, there'll be disparity in the rewards that are granted in heaven according to what we did with our faith here in this life. Friends, the answer is clear. Ownership is biblical. Thou shalt not steal confirms that that's a biblical concept, that ownership is biblical. Second, the redistribution of wealth that we see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts 4 is marked an exceptional time for the church, but in no way did it become a standard that Christians give up all private property. Peter acknowledges this when he says to Ananias and Sapphira, hey, look, the property that you had, it was yours. It belonged to you. It didn't all of a sudden assume itself to the church. It still belonged to you until you sold it. And not to mention the vast number of believers who owned homes and in whose homes the early churches met. Third and finally, and even heaven forecasts, and inequality of rewards, inequality of possessions will be part of our lives in heaven forever. The point is that giving in the early church was generous, and what y'all did last week for the Ferguson family was New Testament generosity, friends. It was wonderful, a wonderful gift that we were able to share with their family. 
Um, giving was voluntary. It was not compulsory. That nobody, was, nobody came as the government and said, you got to do this, you got to give this amount. It was voluntary, not compulsory. Nobody made people give to the church or to the needy. They gave out of an abundance of gratitude in their hearts over what Jesus had done for them. Friends, that is true giving. Okay, well, that's our treatment of this topic for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. It's the question we ask every week around here. Everybody doing okay so far? Okay, and you know what that question is? What difference does all this make to my life? Say, Gordon, I really appreciate the little uh, lesson there through Scripture and seeing Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and hearing some of my dialogue about that, but I mean, how does that affect where I'm at today? And more importantly, even for our series, what difference does this make to our nation, right? Um, I was reading a story not too long ago by Tim Keller. He's a pastor and writer in New York City, uh, pastor of, I don't even know the name of his church, but it's a pretty, pretty good-sized church, and he writes lots of books. And uh, he was telling this true story of how his church took in a family, and this family had a single mom, and she was trying to provide for her kids. And I think in the story she had three children, and uh, she was just barely making ends meet, and she had a lot of debt. And so the church got to know this lady and felt like, compelled to want to try and help her out and help her family out. And so they took up an offering for her and they gave her the, uh, the, the funds. And within six weeks, all the money that they had given her to retire her debt, they took up the amount that would, would retire her debt, all the money that they had given her was gone. Um, you say, well, that's good. She paid down her debt. No. Um, actually, she took her kids out to eat every night for six weeks, took them on a vacation, bought them new clothes, bought them new bicycles, did all sorts of things and just basically squandered the money that the church had raised to try and get her out of the hole that she was living in so that she could begin to have a solid foundation and moving forward financially. Um, well, Tim Keller and the church elders were livid. They were, they were angry, uh, reasonably so, uh, because this lady had taken what was a gift toward paying down her debt to try and help her get some firm footing, and she squandered that. And so the church was rightly upset about it. Um, they did show her mercy. They did show her grace. And they took up another round. Uh, and this time they put the money themselves directly toward her debt and gave her counseling on the backside of all that to, about how to handle her finances. But they asked her the question, they said, why did you just blow all that money? You knew what we gave it to you for. And here was her response. She said, I have felt so guilty for so long that I have not been able to provide for my kids the kind of a life that they knew all the families around them had. I mean, here's this single mom. She's got three kids, and they're just basically barely getting by. And her kids go to school, and they see the other kids at school. They go to church. They see other kids at church, and they know that they don't have that. They don't have that kind of opportunity. They don't have those kinds of stuff. They haven't had those kinds of experiences. And so she just felt guilty as a mom, as a parent, and she wanted to be able to give to her children. Um, didn't make what she did right, but at least we can empathize with her situation. Friends, the issue is, this is what redistribution of wealth has become in America. Our government just keeps writing checks every week and handing them out to people and sustaining their existence. You follow that. I mean, because that mom, that single mom, was going to need another round of checks and another round of checks and another round of checks if they hadn't counseled her to stop using the money that they were giving her in the way that she was. 
Um, the problem with this philosophy of sustaining people's existence, as Margaret Thatcher once said, the problem with socialism is sooner or later, you're going to run out of other people's money. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good quote. Did you hear what she said? She said, the problem with socialism is sooner or later, you're going to run out of other people's money. So there has to be a better way for ending the problem of poverty and yet showing compassion for those who are in immediate financial danger. You say, well, I'd love to hear the solution to that. Well, enter capitalism. While capitalism acknowledges that some people will have a larger piece of the pie, and that's biblical, right? We saw that from Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 19, that even in heaven, our experience of heaven, there's going to be a disparity in possessions, that while some people may have a little bit bigger piece of the pie, some a whole lot bigger piece of the pie, and that some people will do better than others, capitalism also believes that we can grow the pie. See, the assumption of socialism and the assumption of communism is that we have a pie and that this is what we got and that's all we got. And so if you got a big slice of the pie and you're over here with a little tiny slice of the pie, then we're going to take some from the person that has a big slice of the pie and we're going to give it to all the people who have a little slice of the pie to grow their piece of the pie. But there's only so much pie to go around. Capitalism, on the other hand, says, hey, look, we can grow a bigger pie so that the little slice that you have itself can grow as the pie itself grows. And friends, that's what we see happening in our, cult, in, our, in our country right now, is that business is booming. Taxes are down. Strangely enough, the reciprocal of that is the federal government's revenue is up. Nobody ever wants to talk about that, right? They got more money now that they've lowered taxes. It's funny how that works. But there's more money in the economy. There's more investment happening. And as a result of all that, the pie is growing. Four million people in 2018 have come off of food stamps in the United States of America. Four million people, that is four million people have been lifted, not completely, but in that part, have been lifted out of poverty. Not because the government took a little bit bigger piece of the pie from Warren Buffett or people like him and gave it to the people who had a little slice of pie, but rather because the pie grew and so people were able to have a little bit more in their little piece of the pie. You follow that? There's a whole lot of pie talk there. I don't know if y'all are hungry now or not, but anyhow... Um, the economy has expanded, wages have gone up, and people or less people are dependent on government programs. That is, more people have their independence, and capitalism has allowed that to happen. Now, what difference does this make to your life and to mine? Well, with regard to politics, we have an election coming up where you can vote for Bernie, and Bernie has become the, the, the thinking cap for the Democrat Party. I, this is, it's amazing to me that that's what's happened. The Democrat Party has run to Bernie. And I'm like, Bernie is a self-identified socialist. He's a guy who thinks the pie is only so big. Um, and so he's out there, you know, with this whole idea of redistribution of wealth. We're giving is compulsory. It's called taxation. And the government becomes the great provider. And so that's the world, that's the, that's the country that Bernie would like to see America become. Uh, or you can choose free market capitalism and the party of smaller government and greater economic opportunity for all Americans through a growing economy. That's one thing that this has to do with your life and with mine. But what about where I'm living, right? What about at my house? I mean, that's fine for Washington to debate and talk about these topics of the economy and how our economy ought to be configured and taxes and that sort of stuff. But I mean, what difference does this make to me with my family and with where I'm living, right? Well, I'd be willing to bet that some of you have family members like that single mom at Tim, Tim Keller's church, who, have, who, are, who are literally living on the edge of financial disaster, who are financially in danger. Um, people in your school who, uh, you know, who, who are at that place. 
Now, is what they need more money? Is what they need, is that what's going to solve their problem long term? You know, the, what is it, the Chinese proverb or some kind of proverb that says you teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime, but if you give a man a fish, you fed him for a day, right? And so that's the idea here is that is what people need more money. Well, friends, money won't fix poverty. The last 60 years in America has proven that since the New Deal. Um, you can't throw money at poverty and expect that to fix the problem. Um, uh, What people who are in that situation need is, one, they need to know how to manage the finances that they have, the money that they do have, and to handle it wisely. Um, But then also in other situations, sometimes people simply need to be told no, uh, to be cut off from further checks, to be cut off from further aid, from further help. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10 says, Paul writes, for even when we were with you, we gave you this command. This is something that we taught you. This is something that we told you, he says. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, what does that look like in terms of our government, friends? There is a biblical principle there that work from able-bodied persons, that's who Paul has in view, from able-bodied persons should be a prerequisite to aid. It should be a prerequisite to food stamps. It should be a prerequisite to receiving Medicaid or whatever the government program may be. That work for help is a biblical principle. Again, the solution to poverty is not throwing more money at the problem, but rather creating an environment of personal responsibility and personal accountability coupled with a growing pie, which creates greater opportunity for self-advancement and for lifting myself out of the situation that I'm in. Friends, if you tell that family member of yours who has been leeching off of you and your family, I'm sorry, I'm just talking, 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 telling it straight here today, right? So I'm not sorry. Um, But that family member that's been leeching off of you for years and years and years now, what's going to happen when you tell them no is they're going to kick and they're going to scream and they're going to fuss at you and they're going to be upset at you and they're going to call you all kinds of names and say that you have no heart and say that you have no mercy and they're not going to like you anymore and they're going to say all things on Facebook about you. But friends, at the end of the day, they're going to get hungry and they're going to do something about their situation. That is forcing personal responsibility. And that's what's gone away from our government programs. This idea that I am personally accountable, that I have personal responsibility. I have to have some investment in this aid, this help that I'm getting. Otherwise, it's charity. It's really toxic. It'll ne- I'll never get out of the situation that I'm in. I have no motivation to get out of the situation that I'm in. Because the money just keeps flowing. And friends, sooner or later, that pie is going to completely disappear. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us from your word. These are tough words. It's tough love. That's why it's called tough. Lord, if there's some people in our family, some people in our community that just need some tough love, give us solid feet, a strong back. And let us tell them what we know is best for them to hear. God, we pray that you would um, open our eyes to the most compassionate thing that we can do. The thing that dignifies the person that we love. Throw in more money, God. You know that wouldn't fix the problem. 
So Lord, we just ask that you would give us clear vision for how you want us to respond. We thank you for your shed blood. We thank you for your broken body, for the grace that you showed us that was undeserved. And so Lord, we just ask that in this quiet moment this morning, that you would speak to our hearts on these issues. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.